Ladies and gentlemen, hello. I'm Andrew Roberts, the Roger and Martha Mertz Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Dambisa Moyo is a Zambian economist who specializes in how economics and power interact. She's the author of several controversial books, including Dead Aid and Winner Takes All. In 2018, she wrote Edge of Chaos about the Great Crash of 2008. Her latest book is How Boards Work. Dambisa, how is the Gilded Age, which we'll take to be 1870 to 1900, similar to the economic boom years of 1950 to, say, 2008? Well, Andrew, in many ways, um, let me just go through a bunch of things that happened during the Gilded Age that are very much reflected in the period between 1950 and 2008. For instance, these are both periods of high economic growth. Um, As you know, in order to double per capita incomes in a generation, you need to be growing by at least 3%. Both of these are periods in which the global economy was growing above 3%, and certainly the United States economy was growing gangbusters. The second point is that these are both periods of high globalization. By globalization, I'm talking about a lot of trade across borders, a lot of movement of capital, high periods of immigration, and really great interaction of multilateralism between different countries. You had the League of Nations as United Nations uh, predecessor, and obviously more recently, uh, post-Bretton Woods, between the 1950s and 2008, you've had the World Bank, IMF, and many other international agencies that have been spawned um, with this whole idea of, uh, of globalization. A couple of other ways in which these two periods are very similar. Um, one is that you see uh, a, a period of, in which corporations play a very dominant role. So they are large corporate imprimatur. Um, they are in the period of the Gilded Age, you have Standard Oil, you have the robber barons, um, very similar to the period of globalization that we have just witnessed between 1950 and 2008 with large global and complex organizations. And then perhaps an, a bit of a downer um, is that we actually see these periods as being very similar because of income inequality, and in particular, inequality um, was widening and worsening in both the Gilded Age and clearly uh, over the period between 19, uh, 1950 and 2008. And so what occurrences punctured the heyday of, uh, of, these, of these Gilded Ages, especially the first one? Yes. So three things happened that punctured the Gilded Age um, in, in almost in, in short shrift order. First of all, you had World War I. Um, which was, as you know, 1914 to 1918. Um, You then had the Spanish flu, in which, by some estimates, as many as 100 million, but certainly 50 million people died. And this was from 1918 to 1920. And then, of course, you had the economic crash, uh, which followed uh, with a a Great Depression of 1929, um, where actually, I think very importantly, we saw a peak of the Dow Jones industrial industry, industrial average, uh, where the stock markets peaked in 1929 at 381 points, and we did not see the markets hit that number again until 1954. So those three things really set the stage for a, a very big reckoning in terms of uh, the global economy and, and, in fact, a reversal of the key characteristics of the Gilded Age that I, I outlined a moment ago. And you, you argue that that quarter of a century, the one from the Great Crash in 1929 uh, until 1954, are a really useful 
historical indicator of what might happen in the next few decades, don't you? What specifically happened in what we now call the progressive era that serves as a, a guide for this future scenario of yours? Yes, you're absolutely right. I, my, my great concern is that uh, we've had our own pandemic and our own financial crisis, and I do think that those, um, you know, God willing, uh, you know, war with uh, Russia doesn't end up being a, a segue to uh, to what I think happens next. But I do believe that uh, a, 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 what we are, should expect is a complete reversal of the features of the Gilded Age as well as uh, the 1950-2008 period. So specifically, uh, we saw the, uh, the the reduction of growth um, in the period between 1930 and 1954. In fact, many historians um, have cataloged and economists have cataloged a period of high unemployment and real uh, trauma in terms of economic growth, in which many pictures uh, still reflect that. Uh, it was a period in which corporations became small. The role of government became much bigger. Um, the Sherman Act of 1900 antitrust had already put in motion uh, an anti-corporate sentiment. So you actually see a dismantling of many conglomerates. Um, and that is a very big feature uh, of the, the 1930s period onwards. But more importantly, government becomes a much bigger feature of the economy. You start to see the development of the welfare state. And with FDR, um, President uh, Roosevelt, you, you do see the development of Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, um, but also a, a complete reversal of globalization in terms of trade and capital flows. You have Smoot-Hawley, which is legislation in the United States that basically imposed numerous tariffs on goods and services. Um, and so really a complete reversal of the story of the Gilded Age. Um, and, you know, just, uh, again, trying to really to get at the, the inequality uh, issue, the government becomes a big feature of the economy. And what does what brings um, to an end that growth era, that 1950 to 2008 uh, growth era that uh, you've just mentioned? Yes. So, you know, in much the same way that the Gilded Age uh, really was uh, scuppered or came to a screeching halt uh, with the war, um, a pandemic and then uh, obviously an economic crash. We've had a 2008 financial crash. Uh, We've had a pandemic um, from uh, uh, from, uh, 2020. um, And there are already a number of uh, economic headwinds that the global economy has been dealing with. Things like technology and the joblessness uh, or risk of a jobless underclass, demographic shifts from 1960 to today, we've seen the, the fastest increase in the world's population on record. Um, you know, it's taken uh, just 50 years to, to go from uh, 3 billion to nearly 8 billion people. Um, it took 125 years to go from 1 billion to 2 billion people. So enormous demographic shifts um, that are causing a, a lot of challenges um, across the world. Add to that uh, climate change concerns, uh, issues around supply constraints uh, of natural resources, uh, add to that inequality, uh, as I said, not just income inequality, but concerns about inequality in access to education and healthcare, which is creating a disaffection in society. These factors, more structural factors, um, the amount of debt, productivity declines are adding into a very complicated picture where there are really no solutions um, or it's becoming much more challenging for public policymakers to address the challenges because they've run out of toolbox kits. And and before the 2020 global pandemic, what what trends do you believe are already defining the, the global picture economically, geopolitically, sociologically and so on? 
Yeah, so certainly we were already seeing a balkanization or a breakdown in globalization. We had already started to see the rise of China, um, and obviously in many respects, ideologically, um, in terms of their outlook economically, but also in terms of statecraft and politics, um, very different ideological principles. And that had put us uh, sort of at opposing sides. Um, Obviously, uh, as I mentioned, concerns around climate change, um, but also the real risk that technology was going to create a jobless underclass were all features um, of the pre-pandemic era. Um, Debt, uh, the fact that in the financial crisis, and of course, with the pandemic response, we've now ended up with Uh, many societies uh, where the debt-to-GDP ratio is over 100%, where it's been telegraphed over centuries that having that uh, ratio of debt-to-GDP acts as an enormous drag to an economy. So this confluence of factors, inequality, technology, China's rise, uh, as well as climate, um, are are headwinds that were definitely, uh, you know, hot uh, hot on heels um, before the pandemic hit in earnest in March 2020. And then drawing on the um, historical policy response after the great crash, the great 1929 crash, um, do you think there are decisions uh, that you think that decision makers will put in place over the next few decades? Are are they going to learn the lesson, as it were? Well, you know, we we have a a knack and particularly policymakers have a knack for forgetting uh, what happened the last time. And so I I do worry a lot that uh, the easy reach in a, in a world of inequality and slow growth, as we are facing today, um, leads policymakers to reach for solutions that are very attractive in the short term, and I'll come to a list in a minute, um, but are uh, quite damaging economically in the longer term. So things like um, taxing uh, the, the sort of uh, uh, the goose that's saying the golden egg, if I may use a cliche, um, in this case, the ta- taxing uh, private sector industry, technology in particular, but also um, all areas of, techno- of, uh, of, uh, of, of economy um, is, is a very big risk and could be believed to become very problematic. Um, other areas that I think we should watch out for is that I think regulation will become much more uh, tough, uh, meaning that you will start to see much more aggression around antitrust, so the breaking up of monopolies, um, pretty much every sector, banking, technology, consumer goods, um, as well as insurance, um, are now very heavily dominated by a handful of companies. If you look around the globe, uh, airlines and, and many other uh, sectors also. And so there's a high likelihood that governments will be looking to break those companies up. You know, other things that you, I expect to see um, from government action are, uh, are, are really uh, starting to see um, governments become bigger in terms of a welfare state. We've already seen that um, in many economies. In the United States, Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid is now about 40% of the government's uh, you know, uh, purse. Um, and I think that according to Angela Merkel, uh, if you look at uh, uh, Europe by itself, it's just 7% of the world's population. Uh, it represents 25% of world GDP, but it's 50% of world welfare payments. So half of the world's welfare payments are made in Europe, uh, even though it's just 7% of the world's population. So again, I do think that trend will increase as well. And what, do, what does the past tell us about, the, about all this, about the role of the state, both during and after crises, and the, si- the size of uh, the welfare state in particular? Well, fundamentally, that it can be quite problematic, um, because, you know, obviously, uh, it means that GDP, or the way I would describe it, 
the pie is shrinking. It's not getting bigger. Um, and so the appeal of redistribution, so tax and redistribute uh, in the short term means that, uh, sure, you can, you can have people with a universal basic income at you know, better uh, living standards in the short term, but without longer term investment and planning, you end up in a situation where the economy is not growing um, and there's a, a greater lack of opportunity to invest in things like education, infrastructure, national health and national security, which are key features of how we're going to be able to compete in the future. So, you know, I'm pretty, um, you know, I'm not very sanguine, as you can probably tell, about what policymakers will do in the short term, which is to reach for these uh, short-term fixes. But I, I, I do think it's at the, at the expense of these deeper, longer challenges that worry me a lot. You've mentioned Angela Merkel and, uh, and also China. What, what's the role for multilateralism in all of this, would you say? Well, I think at this stage, it's pretty dim, uh, the, the, the prospect, um, you know, partly because uh, Western multilateral institutions have um, struggled to keep up with global changes. So in particular, organizations that are born out of the Bretton Woods agreements um, really have not kept up with recognizing that 90% of the world's population lives in the emerging markets. They've not given China in particular her due. She's now the second largest economy in the world, um, but is not really represented in a lot of the discussions that where she ought to be. Um, but you know, beyond that, we now have rival organizations emerging from places like China, Belt and Road, um, the, the, what used to be called the BRICS Bank, um, but also uh, real efforts in terms of technology and future planning by the Chinese government in particular um, to dominate in terms of technology, AI, quantum computing, um, where we actually have a distinct lag. So, uh, you know, if you take multilateralism, I do think that uh, we've already seen good, strong signs that uh, deglobalization is afoot um, and that a lot of the expectations of uh, a balkanized or rather a, a sort of a, a, a uni unified global world have been dissipating and moving more into a much more fractured and, and balkanized world. So what's the role of the private sector and innovation in all of this then? Well, it's a great question because um, I happen to serve on a number of large, um, uh, you know, broad global corporations. And we spend a lot of time trying to think not only how to invest, but how to operate our businesses in a world that's become extremely dicey. Um, and it, it is a, a, a great challenge. I do uh, think two things are of great concern. One is that it's no doubt about it. Um, we do need government to be functioning at higher levels uh, in order to help build infrastructure and to help create an environment, a crucible where business can thrive, education and healthcare. And so I do think that there's a role for corporations to, to work together with government in, a, in an efficient way. Um, but the other thing that's worth thinking about is that we've seen a market decline in the number of companies that are publicly traded. So many companies, um, for a whole host of reasons, partly because of M&A activity, of mergers and acquisitions, but also because they just don't want to be under the scrutiny of, uh, of regulation and, and, and institutional investors, we're starting to see fewer and fewer companies that are trading publicly. In fact, specifically over the last 10, 12 years, we've seen the number of publicly traded companies in the United States go down by 50%. So there were about 7,000, now they're about 3,500. This has real consequences for investment as well as investment of companies into the future to help um, create jobs, be a tax base, invest in innovation. But it also has real implications um, for how business 
can survive and thrive in a very competitive world with very, very aggressive competition from, from China in military economics and technology. And, absolutely, and uh, and also, of course, the evolution of democracy. What what's the uh, what's the story there over over the period that we're looking at the Gilded Age and the Progressive Era and and today, indeed. You know, I think what gets missed very often, especially if you're living in the West, is that uh, you know we've made important strides, no doubt about it, in sort of telling and telegraphing the story of democracy. But it's really important to remember that we're living in a very unique period of time. Um, meaning that you know today, with all the efforts, with the wall coming down, and with all the sort of glasnost and perestroika, um, we still have a situation where about only thirty percent of the world's population lives in free liberal democracies. Um, in addition, the world historically has only seen democracy for one percent of, of uh, human history time, and we're living through that period right now. So, you know, it, it's really an aberration to have liberal democracy as, as sort of uh, extensive as we're seeing it today and many regions of the world. In fact, many countries uh, that are developed and developing are not uh, liberally democratic. And we have to figure out how to continue to sell the story of, of the importance of democracy, but at the same time, continue to defend our values. Well, you mentioned um, Glasnost and Perestroika. I mean, those are, are pretty much dead as of the 24th of February of this year, aren't they, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Um, can, you, can you see any good, uh, good things um, around the corner at all to, uh, to cheer us up after this uh, fascinating but, but rather uh, depressing uh, um, discussion, uh, Danvisa? Well, well, well let, me, let me assure you, uh, Andrew, that we don't have the, uh, the sort of, uh, uh, the sort of uh, benefit of the world coming to an end on our watch. I, I don't believe that it will. Um, and so, you know, the question is, is what happens next? And I, I'm, I must say, I'm quite heartened by the speed with which Western countries have come together um, you know, to defend ideological values and democracy. Um, you know, quite candidly, I, I wish we had, uh, you know, more planning, more, maybe even taking these issues more seriously. I think we would have been, uh, we could have probably saved a lot, a mo- lot more lives. But nonetheless, I think, um, you know, we should be heartened with the fact that there is still an opportunity economically to exert pressure um, on countries that go rogue, um, such as Russia, um, but also really send a message or a beta test to other countries that might have ideas about uh, taking down the ideological narrative of the West uh, around democracy. But look, there's a lot of work to be done. And I certainly don't uh, rest easy when I look around the world and I think about just how many catastrophes have happened and not only how we've been ill-prepared, but also how uh, we we didn't expect uh, the pandemic, we didn't expect the financial crisis, we didn't expect Brexit, those things happened and we didn't have a plan to address them or to prepare for them. And I think it's that which is quite worrisome. Dan Beza, you've uh, written an extremely good book about boards and sitting on boards. And, uh, uh, of course, as you mentioned, you're on the boards of many important and serious and substantial companies. Uh, <laughs> how can that help? Uh, how can being better 
at the governance of these big corporations help all of the issues that you've just mentioned with the problems of uh, of democracy in the world so far? Well, it's it's a wonderful question because I you know I look back in history and uh, you know I've had the privilege of serving on a board that's over three hundred years old, and you know many corporations have been able to. Uh, you know, survived through um, you know, economic and political upheavals, pandemics, economic downturns. Um, and, and I think what's really important is they've survived. And we need corporations to not just survive, but to thrive and to be able to compete um, as sort of culture carriers and, and sort of uh, bearers of, of ideological values that we espouse. These companies are providing jobs, they are providing a tax base, which is really important for government in terms of building out infrastructure and roads and as well as uh, schools and healthcare. But also they're critically at the tip of the spear in terms of innovation and how we'll be able to compete uh, with countries like China. And so I think it's really important for us to understand that corporations are partners and ought to be partners in so- with society, um, but partners also with government in trying to solve some of the biggest and um, challenging and seemingly intractable problems that the world faces today. This is a question that I ask all of my guests. What history book or biography are you reading at the moment? So pathetically enough, I'm rereading uh, one of my favourite biographies, uh, which obviously I can't say Andrew Roberts' book, so that would be a bit gauche, but it's a book by, uh, by Ron Chernow <laughs> called titan about john d rockefeller which is fantastic uh it does cover the gilded age of course but really the mind of uh, a, a, a genius in terms of building up corporations whose legacy remains today well we're rather hoping that ron will uh, come on the show in fact he uh, he, he he said he might Super. later on so uh, so uh, this will help enormously i think in, in bringing him along i hope so uh, i hope uh, so tamvisa moyo thank you very much indeed for this truly fascinating conversation it's been a pleasure thank you for hosting me i hope you enjoyed my conversation with tamvisa In the next episode, we'll be returning to politics in a conversation with President Ivan Duque of Colombia, who ran on a platform of fighting the FARC Marxist-Leninist guerrilla group. Where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.